Hi, I'm Errol Reed, aka China Black, and you're listening to my interview with Beth and Jimmy on Talk to the Hand. So, Beth, a big day for us today. I know we've got our first special guest. And what a guest it is! Oh, I know, I know the memories. So, a really fascinating chat with Errol, aka China Black. Excellent guy. Really good conversation and some amazing stories, and he was very generous with those stories and really took us back to the 90s and gave us some behind-the-scenes info that we weren't previously aware of. Guys, we're going to leave you to listen to our interview with Errol. We really hope you enjoy it. So for now, let's rewind to the 90s. Errol, thanks so much for joining us on the Talk to the Hand podcast. We're so happy to have you on board and we really can't wait to get into your story. Just to kick us off, would you mind sharing a bit about your early life and what drew you into music? Well, I come from a family that um, was into music. So my dad played all the early sort of like Fats Domino, Nina Simone, Nat King Cole. My mom was into Motown, so it was Diana Ross, The Supremes. Um, my brothers were into reggae, so it was Dennis Brown, Horace Andy, Burning Spear, as well as Bob Marley and Alton Ellis and all that sort of stuff. And I was into the early pop stuff. So I think I said to you earlier that one of the first records I bought was Don't Go Breaking My Heart by Elton John and Kiki D. That was the first record I bought. So and I think my response was, into- was absolute banger. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't if I tried. Yeah. <laughs> so was that, that, that was my musical sort of like um, upbringing. And then when, um, after say Elton John Kiki did then I moved into more sort of as well as reggae but more sort of soulful and R&B stuff so I, I then got into your Luther Vandrosses, your Shalimars, your Freddie Jacksons, your Evening Champagne Kings as well as my brother's record reggae record collection which um, influenced me in actually going into doing music singing on a sound system which is a, a, a Caribbean disco with massive speakers and stuff like that playing at house parties. And that's kind of where I got my introduction and my initiation into music in the early days, pre-China Black. That sounds like a solid, solid grounding. At what point did you realise that you could sing? So we we all like to sing in the shower and we all like to uh, give it a good go. But at what point did you realise that your voice was, was a bit different? It was, you know what, it was, I was at a party, I was at someone's um, birthday party, we call them Shabins, so it's like a um, a club in the basement of a house in Handsworth, Birmingham, and they were playing Sandra Cross, Country Living, and it came to the instrumental bit at the end of the song, and I remember this quite clearly, because that was a pivotal moment for me, and as it, as it came into the instrumental bit, I started singing... Um, Dennis Brown's No Man is an Island. No. So I started singing that and the crowd went crazy. Mm. I went, huh? Okay. They seem to like what I'm doing. So um, <laughs> the guy that was on the sound system said, keep singing, keep singing. So I carried on singing. I just I just started making up stuff on the on the spot. Like, ain't no sound better than I just started ad-libbing. And I'm like going, oh, I like the feeling of this. Yeah. In hindsight, in hindsight, I should have co- I should have become a superstar DJ like David Getter or Swedish House Mafia. But back then, it was all about the singers. Yeah. So um, that's my that was my first introduction to it. And I was like, going, oh, 
people actually like my voice. Because I just used to sing at home. I'd sing along to, like I said, I'd sing along to Shalimar. I'd sing along to Prince. I tried to avoid Michael Jackson because I sounded too much like Michael, uh, according to some people. If you know, like, she's out of my life. The vibrato. I was like going, I can't help. That's my vibrato. It's not like Michael Jackson, man. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to like not focus on Michael and focus on completely different artists to try and get away from that. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. But what were one of your early dreams to be an architect? Um, I wanted to be a structural engineer. So I did yeah. I did A-level engineering drawing. I did pure and applied maths and physics. So I was like going, I'm going to be a structural engineer. I'm going to build oil rigs and massive blocks of flats and really stylish buildings. I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm 25. I'll retire <laughs> when I'm 30. Oh, my life's mapped out. <laughs> <laughs> the things that, that I was, what, 14, 15, and I had oh, all these plans. <laughs> but you left Birmingham to obviously go to London to then pursue what you wanted to do in the music. Uh, initially, I came because I was, I was pursuing a musical career in Birmingham, but mm. obviously it wasn't paying. And Birmingham was, at the time, was pretty much reggae-based. So you had Steel Pulse, um, you had um, UB40, you had, um, oh, what's it? Past the dodgy pandy, left-hand side of Dagobon. So you had, so it was very much a reggae-based place. So I with my soulful upbringing and my soulful background, I was bringing that to what was going on in the reggae scene up there, but it wasn't paying the bills and you got your parents, get a job, get a job. You're out every Saturday night, Friday and Saturday night doing sound system, coming in early hours of the morning. At the time when people smoked indoors, stinking of smoke yeah. and all the rest of it, I was like, I was like, yeah. Going, mm. and it's amazing how normal that was then. If you think now, if you saw somebody smoking in that kind of environment, you, you, your eyes would pop out of your head. But back then, it was the normal way of things, wasn't mm. it? Even at the height of China Black, it was still normal mm. in the nineties, so like ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, around then. I don't know when they stopped smoking indoors, but I do remember singing in clubs and my, my throat burning and stuff like that from the smoke. But in answer to your question, Beth, I, I came to London primarily just to get work. So it was just to get a job. I ended up getting a job with Brent Council. They sent me to South Bank to do a degree in town planning. Um, and I sort of slipped into town planning. Instead of drawing the plans, I was the one that was looking over the plans mm -hmm. and making decisions on people's planning applications. So um, that's basically why I came to London. And while I was here, then all the other connections I made led to China Black being formed. That actually leads us nicely on to the, the next question then. So how did you and Simon end up collaborating to become China Black? It started because while I was in Birmingham, my mom and my sisters, they all go to this church called the Church of God of Prophecy. From that church, you had people like Misha Paris, and uh, all these other artists that are from the church and are big artists today, um, they all sort of like frequented that church. They came from either the London branch or the Manchester branch or wherever, but they all used to converge sometimes for um, what they call them conventions or conferences in Birmingham. Oh, wow. And so you had Faye Simpson, who is my sister's best friend. Faye is from a band called New Colours. So um, Faye used to live in Halston, just up the road. So Faye told her brother, Ronnie, a guy called Ronnie Jordan, Ronnie Simpson. If you remember um, Ronnie Jordan, the jazz guitarist, 
controversy. So Faye told Ronnie, oh, Errol's looking for some, some music work and I know that you're doing stuff. So maybe you could get him to do some backing vocals. He, Ronnie was working with a brand new artist by the name of Omar on his There's Nothing Like This album. He released Golden Brown as well, didn't he? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. So um, I was saying to Ronnie, can I come and do backing vocals for this kid? And Ronnie's like, oh, he does everything himself. But I know there's a guy looking for a female vocalist, but your voice is quite high. So um, maybe you should go around and see him. So I went, I popped down to Wembley, um, down the road, because I was working for Brent Council in Wembley Triangle. So I just went down the road, Sudbury, then you just go like you're going down towards Acton. He, was, he sort of lived in the residential backstreet areas of Wembley. So I went down there, went to his house, went into his studio, um, played a couple of bits and pieces to me, and then he played Searching. And I went, yeah, I can. So I sang that, all the many, dropped my vocals on that. And he was like, um, hmm. Okay, I did. I was looking for a female vocalist, but you sound amazing on this. Let's finish recording it. When can you come back? And that's how it was formed. It was basically Ronnie Jordan putting us together, um, sending me over there, putting us together. And um, at the time, we didn't have a name. It was just trying out songs and just seeing what my voice worked on. Hmm. Uh, and um, Simon and I came together that way. Oh, fantastic. So it's Ronnie's fault. God rest your soul, Ronnie. <laughs> you, you talked about searching there, and obviously we had a conversation about this the other day, but what an amazing song and, and vocally brilliant the way the song was delivered. Originally it was released in 1992 and you had great success in the reggae charts and in the R&B charts, but it didn't go into the main singles charts. And then there was an issue around your record label going bust. Can you tell us a bit about yeah. that time? Yes, it was released um, 91, going into 92. Um, it stayed in the, it entered the reggae charts and it stayed in the, it stayed at number one for about, I remember David Rodigan telling me this because at the time you're so busy running around promoting the thing that you don't have time to sit back and enjoy it. And then you have other people like David Rodigan, who I think he was on Kiss at the time. And I remember doing an interview, he said, you were number one in the reggae charts for about three or four months. You were in the top 10 for about just short of a year. Um, blow, and I'm like, whoa, didn't even clock that. <laughs> I knew it was doing I knew it was doing because it went up, 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 stayed, stayed, stayed. And then it would like go like number two, number two, number two, number two, number three, number three, number three, number three, number three. Number three. And then it just slowly crept out sort of thing. And he said, yeah, you were up there for quite a while. You were in the top 10 or the top 20 for about a year. And he said, and that was unknown for an English reggae band to do it because at that time, it was normally Car or Jamaican reggae bands or Caribbean reggae bands that were dominating the charts. Yeah. The English acts weren't really getting a look in. And then we came in, bish bang, wallop, took it all over and then slowly crept out, which drew awareness to the band, to the major labels. They were like, oh, who's this band? What was this band over there? <laughs> sort of thing. So um, yeah, that's 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 how it started. The China Black in, in the music charts, and yeah, we we it first came out ninety two, and then the record label decided rather than pay us our money, they'd bankrupt themselves, oh, which meant that so one of those situations. <laughs> yes, so we then um, we then had to because you because the record company is bankrupt, you then have to go the, the um, what what are they called? Oh, uh, what are they called? What are they called? The guys that basically go around sorting out 
the debts that I'll that company owes. The auditors. Yeah. Exactly. So we had to buy our record back to add insult to injury. So, so that was you and Simon had to buy that back yourselves. Exactly. We had to get oh, our record. Wow. Not only did we not get paid, we had to get our record back because it was an asset that they could sell to settle the debts. So as it was an asset, we had to pay for it because otherwise it would have, I suppose they'd have sold it to somebody else as an asset. So we had to get it back. Thank goodness we did, because then that opened the doors for us to then take our record and do a deal with, at the time it was Polygram, it's now Universal, do a deal with um, Universal and Wildcard with a a guy called Colin Barlow and uh, the now md or the, the the grand fromage of the whole of universal he was our anr lucian grange whose son married lionel rich's daughter the other day <laughs> <laughs> small world small world but that i mean two things really there i think first of all amazing decision to buy that record back because mm-hmm. it went on to have such great success for you and and the second point then it was a quite insightful from the record label to, to get you guys on because in 94 you re-released Searching and that time it was into the UK singles chart wasn't it? Yeah uh, 4th of July 1994 so next year it will be 30 years um, since its second release on the 4th of July so I've got a few plans for that but um, yeah we um, we got the record back it came in at 15 came to the top 20 at 15 in the days when top 20 mattered so we came in at 15 and then I remember having to go to Richard Saunders um at Brent Planning I said I'm gonna need next Wednesday off and he said what's that for I said well um I've got to go and do top of the pops (laughs) but keep that between you and me (laughs) (laughs) so you were still working at Brent Council at that time yeah I wouldn't leave my job I thought I'm I said, unless I'm seeing some serious money, I'm not leaving my job. <laughs> but I had a little son at the time. I had a little son at the time who now lives in New Zealand and I had bills to pay. So I'm like, unless I can cover my costs, I'm still going to work. You were going on to Top of the Pops and onto the radio to do interviews and the next day you were back in the office. How was that for your colleagues? Once they realised, because I kept it quite quiet, to be honest. One or two people knew, but I, I try to keep it quiet. Um, Richard, the, 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 the head of planning, knew because, um, which was very naughty of me, but I'm gonna, it's 30 years ago now. Over. <laughs> so um, well, I can tell the story. Now, <laughs> it's in, it's, exactly. It was in the days when you had the, the, the Brent, the long, it was like the, almost like the only fools and horses van, but it was um, a four wheel, Robin and Three was a four wheel drive, so it wasn't a Robin Reliant. And um, you had the green van with London Borough Brent on the side of it. And um, I remember I had to do a Radio 1 magazine show. And I'm trying to remember what the, the title of the show was, but it was a very popular magazine show on Radio 1. And um, we were invited to do an interview on it. So um, I, I just went, I'm just popping up for a site visit, got in the van, drove all the way down um, through Harlesden, all down um, the, the A5 into um, central London, the, put the van on a parking meter, went into Radio 1, did my interview, came back thinking everyone was none the wiser. It was Newsbeat, that was it, Newsbeat. It was then, it was um, being broadcast one evening while Richard was on his way home along the North Circular. 
And he said he was driving because I remember he came in the following day and he called me. He said, Errol, can I, can I just have a word with you in my office? And I went, oh, what have I done now? Because <laughs> nine times out of ten, I, I, nine times out of ten, I would have done something. There was stuff that I was up to back then that was just horrendous, like wearing certain T-shirts, wearing headphones. Headphones is my Sony Walkman in the office. Yeah, listening wow, to. That, that takes yeah. <laughs> yeah, listening to Cameo, Word Up and all that sort of thing in the <laughs> office. And um, Richard called me in and he went, um, just shut the door, Errol. I went, oh, okay. He said, well, I said uh, well, can I help you? What's, what's going on? And he said, I was driving home last night and I was listening to the radio. And I'm like, yeah. He said, and I, was, I heard this voice and I thought, that really sounds like Errol. And he said, I was, uh, there I was just coming up to sort of like wood green area. And he said, and that was Errol Reed and Simon Fung, China Black. And he said, I literally went, exactly so he was like i didn't know you did music i said yeah i do he said okay I said, well, oh, okay sounds good sounds good so when it came to go and do top of the pops and i told him he was like he said yeah okay so I, I remember doing it was in the days when top of the pops was filmed on a wednesday and then shown on a thursday mm. so i did i did the show on the wednesday with i believe it was let loose was debuting on that show. Oasis was debuting on that show. China Black was on that show. And I think it was Eternal. It could have been Eternal. I don't think it was Black Street because we, we did it with so many artists. Mariah Carey, there's so many artists we mm. did. Top of the Pops with back then. Recorded it on Wednesday. It was shown on the Thursday. And then when I came back to the office on the Friday where everyone had seen it on Thursday night, I walked into a round of applause. Oh, oh, that was nice. And did you have any fans suddenly appear at work then after that? Topic? Yeah, they started, they did. Mm. Once people found out, because obviously on top of the pots, they put Errol still works as a town planner and stuff like <laughs> oh, that. No. They had to put a, yeah, they put the information on the screen. You That's can a see stitch up. <laughs> Probably still on YouTube. You see the little, the little top, like China Black searching number 10. Errol still works as a town planner for break or something like that along the screen. So um, I'd come in the morning and you'd have people waiting outside for me to turn up for autographs or they'd come to the planning reception and pretend that they wanted to discuss either a planning proposal or an application. I'd come out and I'd go, hi, Mr. E, can, can I have your autograph? I, said, <laughs> I really love it. So, um, which is really good of Brent. They said, look, this is disrupting um, business. So mm -hmm. what we recommend is that you take a six-month sabbatical, go off and work out whether you want to be a pop star or a town planner, and we'll hold on to your position for you. Oh, wow, that was very good of them, wasn't wow, it? Wow, that is. Yeah. That is good. I, I don't suppose it did them much harm, though, having one of their own kind of making his way through on the, on the pop market. From a reputational perspective, it was probably quite a nice PR thing for them. Brilliant PR thing for them, because um, I remember when I was doing, um, is it After Five? There's a, there was a TV show called After Five, I think it was on, on um, ITV. Um, a bit like this morning, but it was in the evening, so you'd have um, interviews and artists and stuff like that on and I remember being on that and I remember sitting in the uh, makeup makeup room and I just caught wind of a, a a VT a video a video that they they'd filmed and I looked and I went I swear that was one of my old colleagues at Brent <laughs> so so I looked and I went and it was like they they had this thing where there was a load of files and a person pushed over the files and then it reversed back pushed over the files and it would do it back to the stack. And I went, yeah, okay, what am I walking into? Yeah. <laughs>
But I remember being interviewed and um, he said, what do you think your colleagues at Brent think about your musical career? I went, I don't know. I think they're pretty happy for me um, pursuing this career. They said, why don't we find out? And then they played <laughs> play the videotape. So I went, I knew it. So they had like, Errol, these are the applications you've left behind. And then they pushed over the files. And in the days when it was all in files, not on, it's all digital now. So um, we, we did that. They went through all of that. So they, it was, it was an interesting time. It was definitely an interesting time for them because they had Radio One going and interviewed them, Capital went and interviewed Brent, like I said, ITV. So they had people coming into Brent Council to interview staff about me pursuing a music music career and trying to juggle it with planning as well. And I guess it was different then as well because you're talking about some of these television appearances you were making. It's not like now where we've got hundreds and if not thousands of different channels on. At the time, things like Sky wasn't as readily available across different households. So if you were on one of the main yeah. channels, you were in millions and millions of households. Exactly. No, exactly. So it's Top of the Pops. You had the Saturday morning shows mm -hmm. on BBC One, ITV. There was one in Scotland. I remember doing... We, we In order to um, either maintain or try and move up the charts, you'd go and do these these Saturday morning kids TV shows mm -hmm. because they'd watch you on TV, you do a performance and then they'd go out with whatever allowance they had to maybe buy one or two records and you hope they'd go straight to Woolworths in the days of Woolworths and buy your record. I still have your record on cassette. So the, the purple and the red, I think it was uh, on the, yeah. on the sleeve. It wasn't like a cassette box. It was, a, it was one of the, the first sleeve cassettes I had. Cardboard sleeve. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Still got those, still got those. <laughs> yeah, we, you, you can't get cassettes now for love nor money, but but we, we've still kept our, our kind of back catalogue. Why do you play them on? Nobody's got cassette. Mm -hmm. Well, I've got a, you remember the cassette recorders? Yes. Mm -hmm. Where you, you could record um, lessons and stuff like that. Or, like the dictaphones. Dictaphones, exactly. So I'd use that for songwriting to get down ideas and stuff right. like that. So that's the only thing I have now to play cassettes on. Errol, I wouldn't play it because now that we're so used to the hardware being much more resilient and robust than it was back then the thought of that tape coming yeah. spinning out of the <laughs> of the player would, would terrify oh. me and having to spin it back round if it had all come out with your pencil with yeah. your pencil yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so, so what was it like at home then Errol so you you talked about you had a, a son at the time how did the sudden interest in your musical career affect your family? There was negatives and positive. Um, it did because um, God rest her soul. I keep going God rest her soul. She then became my ex-wife because of the pressures of. Mm. And she's she's a, she was a school teacher, town planner. She ended up being an Ofsted inspector. Oh wow! As well, yeah. So she ended up inspecting schools, but the pressure that that brought into the relationship was something else. It's something else. It's not something that you realize or you plan for. Mm. You just you're just focused on success mm. and what it can bring for your family. And it's when you're young, you don't have that balance. So I was doing things like working for Brent, studying at South Bank, doing my degree in town planning, trying to pursue a career in pop music or as a, as an artist. So I, I remember finishing work, being picked up, driven to Manchester to go and do a PA in Manchester, then coming back, being driven back from Manchester early as in the morning, being dropped at my house at the time in Luton, maybe getting a couple hours sleep, getting my son ready, jumping in the car, driving back into London <laughs> with a couple hours sleep, dropping him off at the nursery, then going into the office early hours of the morning, 
falling falling asleep at my desk until everybody else came in because I'd be in maybe seven thirty in the morning because it was like I'm up. Yeah. So let's just keep so let's just keep going. That's and, another one for Richard to catch you out on now falling asleep yeah. at your desk. <laughs> yeah. No, but then but that would be so early before anybody was up anyway. Mm. So you'd be in you'd be in the office and then somebody go error you go yeah okay let's get this cracking <laughs> sort of thing before the phone start ringing yeah it was it was hard it was hard and it's about balance when you're young you think you can do everything it's like sleep i'll sleep when i'm dead so you're thinking you think you can survive on one or two hours sleep literally for 24 hours mm. or 48 hours sort of thing and um there's nothing worse than driving up the motorway with your family and you start going mm, worst thing not enough worst thing yeah because you've had no sleep so I thought mm -hmm. right I've got to try and find some sort of balance in my life but it was it was hard it was hard was your son old enough to appreciate what was going on at the time not majorly he's he understands and appreciates it now mm. and um his mom although we separated she came one of my best friends god rest her soul Sharona at the time in all honesty being brutally honest it was just you become so focused on success and what you want to achieve mm. that you you're looking so far ahead that you're not looking at what's right in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. You can't see the woods for the trees. Yeah. Uh, and, and you talked about that success and the success was massive at the time across Europe and, and across in the Far East as well. And you were able to travel around the world supporting some incredible artists at the time. And some of the names I, I noted down were Jamaraquai, Ina Carroll, R. Kelly, and of course, that amazing duet with Barry White on, on French TV. Taratata with Nagui. Yes, that was that was brilliant. I, I actually thought it was a joke. <laughs> I, thought it, I thought it was, um, uh, remember Jeremy Beadle? Yes, yeah. yes. Watch out, Be you better watch out because Beadle's about. Da -da -dum. So I thought it was like a Jeremy Beadle thing. So I thought, what would Barry White want? Barry White doesn't want to sing with me. So I remember Polydor ringing me going, Errol, are you up for doing a duet with Barry White? And I went, yeah, Wars of Love, of course. They said, yeah, it's going to be on Friday on TV in Paris. And I went, what? Nah. Mm -hmm. They said, well, I said, what song is it? It's a song called Let the, Let the Music Play. Do you know? I said, I, I know the melody. I don't know it, no, but I know the melody. So, um, I remember in the days again of cassettes. Mm. I, I actually, no actual Walkman with the CD, mm. with an actual Walkman. I remember lying in bed, headphones on, just listening to the song over and over, falling asleep, waking up, let the music play, playing in my head. And I'm thinking, I'm learning it, but I'm not learning it, but I'm learning it, but I'm not learning it because this is just a joke. So um, I remember being picked up going to Heathrow, flying to Paris, and I'm thinking, wow, they're really putting the boat on, it, on this hoax. So we go to the hotel, drop off our stuff, go to the TV studio, and I'm thinking, wow, they're really pushing the boat out <laughs> on this hoax. I mean, it's like going, like Ashton Cook, where's Ashton, Ashton Kutcher, or something like that. I'm thinking yeah. they're really putting the boat on, the, on this. And then I remember standing there and um, looking, thinking, wow, They've got a whole orchestra, the Love Unlimited Orchestra. I think, well, there's a whole orchestra here. They're American, still a very elaborate hoax. And then out walks Barry White. Wow. And I'm looking, thinking, this ain't a hoax. <laughs> that is Barry White. That really is Barry White. And suddenly you're glad you spent that time yeah. learning the song. <laughs> yeah, because... Because the band started playing and the guy was telling me what he what, what was expected of me. The band started playing 
And I'm in my head, I'm thinking, that's Barry White. That's really Barry White. Ah, I should have been singing two bars ago. So I then had to oh, turn no. up the studio. Exactly. I missed my cue because I was so focused on the fact that Barry White was really there. So I had to then turn to the whole Love Unlimited Orchestra, apologize, say I'm sorry, and stop them. <laughs> it's like, and the studio was freezing cold, but I was sweating. Okay. I was covered in sweat in this ice cold studio, thinking, I've kind of messed up here. <laughs> okay. If you see the video on YouTube, we got through it. We we we, we managed to get yeah. through. It ended up me spending the whole afternoon having lunch in Barry's dressing room, just Barry and I just sitting there having a chat like we are now, just talking about life, talking about music. And, and all the it was brilliant. Very, very giving, very accommodating. Because that, that year, Searching had been nominated for Song of the Year at the Brits. Mm. So I remember being at the Brits and talking to Isaac Hayes. So I was there having a chat with Isaac Hayes. And um, so I said to him, oh, I met Isaac. He said, oh, Isaac's my neighbour. <laughs> so yeah. you've gone from break council town planning <laughs> now you're rubbing shoulders with these guys exactly yeah and then after that then uh can you tell us about recording the world cup song swing low um that just came out the blue because it was, it was a random one because we were set to go on tour with janet jackson when she was doing her european tour and um it just came out the blue that they that the record label said um there's been a request for you to do a duet with Lady Slick Black Mombasa with Swing Low Sweet Chariot. So we went and did that. When the record came out, I think it came in the top 20, but they wanted us to promote it. So I was like, going, well, we can't promote the record because we're going on tour with Janet. Oh, and then the record label went, uh, we pulled you off the tour because you need to promote this record. I'm like, going, no, I want to go on oh, tour no. with Janet. <laughs> did you regret doing the record then? Um, no, you, no regrets, no regrets, because it ended up, the toy, the, the toy ended up going to some mates of mine called m and I oh, got okay. a little something for you. <laughs> so they ended up touring with Janet, but I was, mm. but um, we ended up running around doing, I sang at Twickenham when it was England versus France, sang in the middle of the pitch, doing my swing low, did that there, um, and just ran around the country promoting the record. It was work, but yeah, it's one of them ones. Like, no regrets. I would have loved to have gone on tour with Janet. Mm. Funny enough, my niece now does Janet's hair. Oh, wow. how it come how it comes around. Yeah. It's like a small world, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And that's like an example of obviously the power and the control that the record companies have at that time. You didn't get a choice in that. You couldn't say mm. you couldn't or you know, it wasn't a case of oh, which would you prefer to do? It was like you're doing this. Exactly. Exactly. Right. It was it's the, the age-old adage where I'm like, I, I tell people, so you need to understand. I remember having this discussion with my management, but I remember saying to them, I said, look, you work for me. I don't work for you. It's an 80-20 split. I'm on 80. You're in 20. Who works for who? <laughs> sort mm -hmm. of thing. But, but the impression you were given is that, no, you work for us. This is what you're doing. This is where you're going. But, and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. Um, it was just the way you were treated back then and probably still how people are treated now. Mm. where they're sort of controlled and told where to be what time to be there what to think what to wear mm. how to speak particularly <laughs> soon after breaking through as well i think at that time you still got that kind of gratitude that it's that it's taken off but at the time you're you're kind of just in in the moment you're being told what to do and you think right i better go and, and do that so it's a di it, i guess it's a difficult time 
quite new into the mainstream part of your pop career to yeah. start challenging back these guys that have been doing it for a number of years and they know that, <laughs> you know? Exactly, exactly. So you, you, you take the advice because, like you said, they've been doing it for longer than you have. You, you assume they have a better idea of how things are supposed to run. <laughs> so that, that same year, and this is one of my favourite stories, Errol, that, that we spoke about the other day. Oh. So you performed uh, at Princess Diana's AIDS Trust concert at Wembley. Uh, yeah, Concert of Hope. There was a, a very special moment between the two of you, wasn't there? Yes, um, where you have the, where, where you all line up backstage and um, they walk, the, uh, like Princess Diana walks down the line greeting everyone saying thank you for being here and all the rest of it. I'd sort of um, conjured up a little plan. I'd got a copy of the album and I got time to sign it. I said, let's just sign this. I said, what for? I said, I'm going to give it to all when we're standing in the queue. Weren't you sure? Went, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> so, so she was walking down the queue. I think she, I don't know, was it Eddie Reader? I think she may have gone to Eddie Reader and there was Take That and there was EYC. So she was making her way down the queue and then she came to me and um, she was like, I said, hello, mom, and all the rest of it. And then I went, Prince Charles has the three degrees and you now have, ta-da, I pulled out the CD, China Black. <laughs> and I heard this huge roar from Wembley Arena and I was thinking, what? what's going on? I didn't realise that the camera that was following us down the line was beaming straight out to the um, audience. 12 and a half, 13,000 people in Wembley Arena was beaming straight to them. So the audience just went, yeah. <laughs> a masterstroke of, of PR. Yeah, so, so exactly. So the record label, Lucian and Colin and the PR team came running running to me afterwards and saying, going, that was brilliant. If you ever give up on this music career and you want a job in PR, come and call us. <laughs> not, I might still give them a call. <laughs> And I'm assuming Di Princess Diana took it from you then. And what did she say? Yes. Thank you. She, oh, thank you. She just, she just said, thank you. I'll, um, I'll, I'll take care of it or cherish it or something like that. So, yeah. and, then, then, and then just gave it to her aid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So you, you had all this success and it sounds like at this stage it was, it was unbelievable. But it was matters away from the studios and the arenas that actually caused the issue here and obstructed that further growth for China Black. So there was a lawsuit at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think there was an issue with, um, because we were getting ready for the next album. But I think they wanted to get us away from the American label. Right. And then get us signed directly. Because we were signed, we were actually signed to PWL US. Because it stopped Aiken and Waterman. So you got PWL. So PWL US signed us. Robert John Jones was um, the American label. I'm trying to remember Brian Chin and Robert John Jones with the American label. I'm trying to remember all these names, yeah. names from 30 plus years ago. <laughs> and I think that the management and the record label, Polydor, wanted to get us away from that because it was, ad, it was additional admin within the mm. system, get us away from that and then get us signed directly. And that just create, that opened up a whole can of worms. Right. that lawsuit so where, there, where there's a hit there's a writ they say and there was always issues there was always something going on I remember us getting a van out from a company called Fulton's and we had All Saints in it we had Mark Morrison in it we had all these other acts in it but it was on China Black's account and we were supposed oh, really? to get the money back from all the, yeah we were supposed to get the money back from all the different labels but couldn't the, the management couldn't act, work out properly who's 
who should pay what amount. So it was meant for us to pay. Our accountants didn't want to pay it because they said, you need to work it all out. Then Fulton's was like, well, we need this money and then you can argue about it later. We're going to serve notes on you. And I was like, ah. <laughs> and and the, after that stage, there was a slight change in direction from the record label when they looked at another duo, didn't they, at the time? Well, because there was, I, I, in my personal opinion, because there were so many issues and complications within the China Black team, they, they looked at China Black and they thought, that's a duo, a black guy and a Chinese guy. That's a duo. We've got this other duo over here. We've got a black guy and a white guy called the Lighthouse Family. And where we've um, got it wrong with China Black on certain aspects, we'll implement it in the right way with the Lighthouse Family. And the rest is history. Tundi and Paul did incredibly well, still on the same label. I remember coming in the office and seeing a picture and the picture was very similar to a pose that I did with Simon. I went, hmm, <laughs> I remember that pose. But that's not me, and that's not Simon. <laughs> so they, so they just so, um, adopted the, 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 the model that they had for you guys and, and implemented that with the Lighthouse family, which would have yeah. lifted them. No. <laughs> you could be lifted, lifted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. yeah I think Beth's preferring your, yeah, your contribution there tonight. Yeah. <laughs> but, but a good little push, I like, I like that. <laughs> Um, so you released one single after that, but I think you guys had realised that at the time you were ready to, to move on to different things and you guys split up in 1999. I'll tell you what happened. I'll okay. tell you what happened was we re-released re re If My Emotions. It was Emotions. We released Emotions. And um, when Emotions were supposed to come out, unfortunately, Princess Diane and Dodie died in that car crash. Mm -hmm. And the record was supposed to come out around the same time. I remember going to the label, we cannot release this record because uh, musical programming has changed overnight as if a moniker died. So it was literally, they either wanted to hear do, 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 do. It was either that or mm. candle in the wind or it's very somber. Mm. And the last thing they wanted to hear on the radio was me going, if my emotions get better of me, it's because of you. They didn't want to hear some uplifting reggae song mm. blah blah i'm like going this is not going to work and the label was like well if it's going to work it will work if not then that's what it's meant to be and i'm like oh you're basically killing our career yeah. cheers lads it thank is, you timing, <laughs> timing is everything isn't it exactly so i was like just hold off on the record we don't need to put this out now and they put it out i think it didn't do incredibly well which it wouldn't do because yeah. like i said it would not have been playlisted it was not the time for that sort of music on radio no and it wasn't a regional preference it was the whole nation was was it, it kind of in eggs exactly so it's so i remember being really upset with the label i was going you're killing this you might as well just drop us yeah. Yeah. He told me to say that. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but the thing is, Errol, you ended up having some experiences that were equally as amazing after that stage. So you got a phone call to go on tour with a certain Welsh singer. Yes. Um, got, yeah, China Black, 98, 99, China Black took a, a little um, hiatus, a long break. And then I ended up running around with Tom Jones. Um, I got a call saying... Um, They'd love you to come and do some backing vocals with Tom. So I ran around with Tom for about a year and a half, two years I did that. That's when I realized that sometimes it's not always best to be the main artist. Right. Because um, we'd be doing interviews. For example, we'd fly to Paris to do radio and TV shows. 
the band would go out and be doing shopping and sightseeing, whereas I'd be in a room with journalists and camera crews coming in. We'd just be doing interviews all day. And then we'd go shower, have something to eat, get ready, go straight to a radio station or go straight to a TV station. We'd do all that, all of that stuff, back to the hotel, have some sleep, back in the car, airport, gone. Whereas the band members would be turning up with shopping bags and I'm like, what do you lot get up to? So, oh, we went sightseeing. We went to the Champs-Élysées, Eiffel Town. I'm like, I didn't get a chance to do any of that. So when we, when I was in backing vocals with Tom and Tom was doing all of that, I was out shopping. I'm like, (laughs) ah, right. This is the other side of it. Kind of liking this. And getting to see those sites, I guess, a lot of those buildings going back to your, your first career. Yeah, because you, you you say to people, people say, have you been here? Have you been there? He says, yeah, I've been there, but I've not really seen it. I saw it mm. from a car. Airport, hotel, studio, blah, blah, venue, do a show, do a gig, hotel, airport. And that's your experience of certain parts of the world. So to actually be able to enjoy it. So while I was working with Tom, I was working with a guy called Michael Gray. We wrote a song for a band called Blue. That's, it was originally being pitched to Blue. I somehow ended up in the studio with a guy called Ken Graydon, who is at, who was at the time Robin Gibbs' manager. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, oh, this is a great song. He said, I know Louis Walsh. Would you be happy if it was like Westlife or Samantha Mumba sang it? I went, yeah, yeah, I don't mind. So he took it back to his house. He was playing it in his house to Robin. Robin liked it so much. He said, I want to, I'm doing a new album. I'd love to put it on my album. So I ended up in Mayfair Studios um, recording this song with Robin Gibb from the Bee Gees. And I'm like, yeah, but why are you recording my song? Because you're the Bee Gees, man. You <laughs> write some of the best. He said, for me, it was, if, if people always said it was the Beatles or the Bee Gees. For me, it was the Bee Gees over the Beatles because of the sofa. <laughs> you know, baby, I can figure it out. Your kisses taste like honey. All that, you know what I mean? Stay alive. I'm glad it was you doing those those yeah. excerpts rather than <laughs> Bethel <and> myself. <laughs> so um, I was demonstrating the song to him in the studio and he went, you've got a great voice. I'm going on tour. Would you fancy coming on tour with me? I went, I'm currently running around with Tom, but if it can work. So I'd literally be doing Tom and then flying from, say, Hamburg straight to somewhere else to go and sing with Robin and then going oh, somewhere else. simultaneously. I tried to, yeah, it was, it was hectic. It was hectic. But um, once, once Tom died, and I just, I just went full on just Robin mm-hmm. and did that for about 11, 12 years until wow. he passed from cancer. Mm-hmm. I toured with Robin doing literally running around the world doing, singing all the Bee Gees numbers, mm-hmm. you know, like, I know your eyes in the morning sun. All those, oh, mm-hmm. it was, it was one of the best times for me in music. Uh, and what was Singing he like as, a, as a man? Oh, brilliant. Very um, dry sense of humour. Right. And um, he got my sense because I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a troublemaker. So he said, I wish you could have met Morris. He said, you remind me so much of Morris because oh. there's certain things I do on stage that were just naughty. <laughs> <laughs> or during the sound check. I can't even, I don't even know if I can say it now, but it's like... you can uh, say it. <laughs> tell us, Errol, tell us. Oh, um, Okay. Like Massachusetts, I remember I was being on stage. We were sound checking. I went, Robin, Robin, I've got this wicked idea. And he's like, he's looking at me like, yeah, go on. What is it, Errol? Instead of saying Massachusetts, sorry, Beth, 
I said, thing, I'm going back to massive two tits. <laughs> Did you do it? <laughs> yeah, and he went, he went, how do you think we wrote the song to start off with? Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> he said it always, he said a lot of our songs normally started off quite naughty. And then we like, because you're just there, three lads, you know, start off quite naughty. And then thinking, well, that ain't going to get played on radio. Massachusetts. See, I'm straight away, I'm starting to think, like, <laughs> how deep is your what? <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to go down. I did, drop, I did that one as well, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. And um, he just, he was like, we'd just have a laugh. Mm. I'd end up in his dressing room. We'd just be in, I'd just end up in his dressing room just having a laugh. Got to know his family, got to know RJ, Dwina, everyone quite well. I'd be uh, over at his place in, in Oxford, yeah. in um, Tame. Chance meeting uh, from, from yeah. that song he wrote. And, then, and the, then that time at the studio in Mayfair, and it went on to define the next 10 to 12 years of your life. And as you said, that was some of the greatest times you had. I, I always say luck comes from just being active. Some people say, oh, you've been lucky. I went, well, if being out there working 25 hours, eight days a week is luck, then yes, I was lucky. But I put myself out there for that luck. It, it, like another example, um, while working with Robin, um, I got a phone call from a friend of mine, Everton Webb. He said, oh, there's this young kid in Island Records working in the studio that Bob Marley worked in, in Island Records. And there's a young kid there called Axwell. He's looking for a vocalist. Would you be up for going to work with him? I'm like going, well, I'm supposed to work with Maxi Priest and this guy Livy. We, I was supposed to work with those guys, but they're always late to the studio. So <laughs> this is a, this is this is an opportunity for me to actually go and do something and say to them, oh, I can't make it today, boys. So um, I went and worked with this guy called Axwell. Did a song called Feel the Vibe that goes, Vibe, yeah, you gotta feel the. Do you remember Hi, the uplifting? We remixed that, didn't yes, they? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I did that song with Axwell. Axwell and his two other mates went on to form an act called Swedish House Mafia. Off the back of that, I then went back into the studio with Axwell. And the quick story behind that is I went back into the studio in God, 2005. So I did Field of Vibe 2000, 2001. With Axel, that came out 2003, four, I think it was something like that. I then went into the studio with Axel to do the follow up to Feel the Vibe, and we did a song called Nothing But Love. I don't know if you know that one, but I got nothing but love for you. So when well, I, did I, that I, I won't Axel. tell you how Beth knows where she <laughs> heard that. <laughs> Not from the in between us. <laughs> yes, we won't talk about the scene. But, um, That's not... oh, I couldn't I couldn't believe that they put it in that channel four stitch stitch me right up. While I was recording Nothing But Love, I um I went out for dinner with Axwell, Steve Angelo, and Sebastian Ingrosso. We went out for dinner and um, they said we're, we're thinking of going out as a trio. What do you think of the name Swedish House Mafia? And I'm like going, why Swedish House Mafia? He said, Well, Axwell is Swedish. Steve and I, as in Sebastian Ingrosso and Steve Angelo, we're like Italian. We all like house music, so Swedish house mafia. Because of your connections and blah, 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 I get it. I said, um, I'm from a band where the guy's Chinese and I'm black, so we call ourselves China Black. <laughs> so, okay, I get it. Little did I realise they'd be this massive act mm. that they are today, which helped me because one of the main features of their shows at the time when they were, were coming out was Nothing But Love. Right. It was a massive feature in their, in their show. 
you're still getting an incredible amount of listens on Spotify. In fact, I think your personal channel on Spotify, Errol Reed, is getting more hits uh, monthly than China Black Art. So you've still got a lot of good stuff coming out there. It's really random. It just depends. Like it's it's gone down slightly now, but it was up to two hundred and something, three hundred and something thousand listeners. Mm. So it just depends what you have out at the time. Because mm. um, last year I'd done a song, and it's predominantly house music at the moment that I do. So I do a lot of house music. So last year I did um, a song with a guy called Slip Matt, Andrew Soul Brothers. And a guy called Jody, and we just we basically took the um, zipping up my boots, going back to my roots, yeah. And we we did that in a in a in a house music vibe. Mm. The year before that, I did. Now that we found love, what are we gonna do with it? You almost got that. best singing that. that. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants that. <laughs> so, well, I did two versions of that. Um, the year before last, funny enough, because two different DJ producers approached me in the same week with the same idea. Wow. And I said, I liked both ideas. And one of the ideas keeps coming, keeps popping up in Love Island because mm. Love Island loves our version. So they keep using it. And mm. it goes, now that we found love. And they keep using it when um, yeah. trying to work out what the couples are doing and stuff, and stuff like that. And um, just recently came in the charts last week. I'm an unfeatured vocalist in it, but it's a, a, a DJ called Hannah Lang. And um, if you remember, Eddie Murphy and Rick James did. My girl likes to party all the time, party all the time, party all the time. I did the vocal on that, but they've pitched it up. So it's my girl likes to party all the time, party all the time. And they didn't so my voice is... it up. You could have just done that, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, I could have, but they, they wanted that effect. Yeah. They wanted that computer-generated party all the time. That's already had one point... It's only been out a week. And it's had about 1.3, 1.4 million plays on Spotify. Wow. Came in at 65 when I checked. It's I think it's in the top 50 now. So um, her last record went top 10. If you look at Hannah Lang and HVRR for her, mm -hmm. as in James Her, but he calls himself HVRR. So um, we'll see how that one does. But I'm an unfeatured vocalist on that one. <laughs> Great. And are you still in contact with um, Simon Fung? No, not really. Oh, not okay. really no not really it's not not that it was a bad split it was just that um he wasn't really one for the limelight right simon wasn't mm. simon wasn't really one for the limelight and um simon always kept his hair long so mm. that if he needed to hide himself he just put his head forward and his hair would just swoop forward like uh -huh. the young, what like neil from the young ones and he just disappear yeah. <laughs> and certain things happened that's a conversation for another time certain things happened within the whole China black thing that um, meant we went our separate ways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the phrase I coined at the time was like, people get rich and switch. Oh, yeah. as soon as okay. you, when there's no money, the camaraderie's there and everyone's a unit. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you start generating a lot of money, then people start to get a little bit digi, as I put it. And then I'm like, guys, this is not real money. I said, if we're making millions, then let's argue. But right now we're making tens of thousands there, maybe a hundred grand here. But if this is all we ever earn, mm. this is not going to last a lifetime. Mm. So let's try and make some life changing money. 
and 30 years on, if that's all you ever earn, it's, it wouldn't be here now. Mm. <laughs> I, th I think it's interesting. Um, Tyson Fury actually uh, said something in an interview once which seems very relevant. He said he doesn't enjoy necessarily being the world champion. That's not the, the bit he enjoys of his career. What he really enjoyed was the journey towards it, the struggle, the battle to, to kind of get there. He said that's the bit that he reflects on and thinks he wishes in retrospect he'd have paid more attention at that time. Mm. I agree with him because it's... When you're, when you're fighting to achieve, because I, I like to set goals. And one of my goals was seeing my name in lights mm. at, in Wembley Arena. Mm. And then once I'd achieved that, I'm like, going, oh, wow. Well, I've achieved that because we did the Cons of Hope. And then we did two or three nights with Dina Carroll. Then we did, I think it was a Capital Radio thing there. Mm. And so it was like China Black, China Black. Ch I'm like, how many times am I going to see my name on Wembley Arena? I only wanted it once and now <laughs> so I'm like a, okay so I've achieved that goal so what's the next goal Wembley Stadium let's try and get into the stadium that would be a great goal to achieve then after that it was like I think it was 98 Hong Kong was being handed back to China and I wanted I said China Black should be headlining that gig because the whole planet will be watching the handover that will be shown on the whole planet and I said and if it isn't China Black it's going to be some artist called Vanessa May and who ended up doing it? Vanessa May. Because yeah. <laughs> at the time, China Black was imploding. I'm like, mm. guys! Yeah. That is a, a real so, shame. Yeah. Uh, from, from that time in the 90s, are there many acts that you, you are still in touch with? You mentioned earlier on your, your mates with m &8. Any other acts? Uh, details. I still I still in touch with details from m um, Peter Andre. We do shows together. Because I do a lot of butling shows as China right. Black. Because I, I go out, I go out as China Black, so I still do shows and, so, and stuff like that. I was with Dane Bowers, Abs. Oh, the guy from Fats and Small goes out with them as well, doesn't ben. he? Yeah, ben, yeah, so I was with those guys. Ben, Ben of Odoo, Chesney Hawks. Saturday night. Oh, Wigfield. Wigfield. Wigfield, Shola Amma. You say you can still oh, do that. <laughs> If you think about it, the 90s is 30 years ago. Mm. So the 90s is now in, because if you're talking the 80s, that's 40, set 50. So it's mm -hmm. so the 90s is now is now the, the, the new retro thing that's in. So mm -hmm. you do all the, the the rewind shows. So you do 90s rewind, the rewind the 90s type thing. So I'm doing a lot of those type of shows. And so I see a lot of the artists, like I said, Shola Amma, mm. um, Wigfield, Rosala, Angie Brown. I see a lot of people on the circuit. Mm. The music at the time is attached to certain events that happen in your life or certain periods that you you know you were going through at the time. And I think when you hear the songs now, it kind of takes you immediately back to that time. So um, I think it's great that, that that scene is still there. And I guess for you guys, it must be great to kind of catch up and, and rewind the years, get back on stage and have those people that were listening to you first time around listening again with sometimes maybe their children with them. <laughs> exactly. It's like to reminisce and go back and just catch up with these guys because back back then we'd be running around doing the Radio 1 road shows and party in the parks and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, the really, in those days, I remember doing Arafest, Anti-Racist Alliance Festival in Brockwell Park. And I remember running up on stage and there was something like 80,000 people there. Yeah. It's mad. So it's like, it's, it's, it's good to reconnect with these guys. So tell us a bit about what you have in store, you, your plans for the next kind of year or two and what we can expect to see coming on your, your Spotify channel. 
Well, um, right now I'm planning how to deal with the 30th anniversary of searching. So the 4th of July, 2024. So it came out the 4th of July, 1994. So 2024 is 30 years. I've done an acoustic version of searching so just getting ready to sort of maybe do a soft release on a china black channel and just put it back out there and then rework searching although it was written by simon um i still feel that i need to give it justice and rework it put it out there and and come with some new material come with material where if china black was coming out today what would china black sound like with the take on reggae music today and the influences that we now have from um, West Africa with that sound, you know what I mean? So the, and, and plus the, the, the charts are much more open. So mm-hmm. if you look at um, like Burner Boy and all these new artists that are coming through and the sound that they're bringing with them. And like I said to you, like West Africa and the sounds that are coming from there that are now a very big influence on pop culture here. Because obviously you can hear from that music where um, because of slavery, when, when um, because of um, transa- the, the transatlantic slave trade, some of the elements came across to the Caribbean and then that evolved from that sort of like spiritual music into, to then become ska, mm. to become reggae. And, and, then, and then, then if you look at how reggae then evolved to become drum and bass and, mm. and jungle and it's, and it's all. I guess it was the kind of early nineties that it, it, I remember General Levy and and Jungle. Yeah, I'm just gonna say Buyaka, Buyaka. <laughs> so Errol, tell us where we can find you online. Well, you can find me on Facebook, Errol Reed Music, or just Errol Reed. I'm on Twitter with um, Errol Reed, twitter.com forward slash Errol Reed. I'm on Instagram, Instagram.com forward slash Errol Reed. I've also on there um, as China Black Official. And yeah, you can find me on all those platforms. I'm also on Facebook, China Black Music on Facebook. Fantastic. That's great. So anyone who wants to catch up on what Errol's getting up to and the latest releases and any tour dates, do get onto those social media sites and check out what he's up to, especially next year around July, because there'll be an exciting release at that time. We have a question that we like to finish on with our interviews. So we're going we're gonna to put you on the spot now and ask it. Okay. If you could pick any year within the 1990s to go back and relive again, just one year that you can go back and live the whole thing again, what year would you pick and why? Hmm. I'd go back to 1992. I would make sure that first release of Searching was done correctly. Right. Um, I'd make sure that um, we were protected from your Jet Stars. If you remember Jet Star mm-hmm. in Halston. Because yeah, Jetstar on the high on the, on the high street, Mr. Palm and those guys, because they were all involved in the the ultimate ripoff and downfall of China Black back then, and just make sure that it was all done correctly. Because the original version of Searching was the one that people, when I went out and did PAs, that's what people wanted to hear. They said, "We don't want to hear that pop stuff. We want that original Reggie version." Mm. I was like, "What?" <laughs> So I'd go, if, it, if you're talking music, I'd go back to 1992 and just make sure it was done properly. If you were talking going back in time, I'd go back in time and hopefully still have the knowledge I have now in part of myself of saying, right, get your music career going a lot earlier. but definitely i'd go back to 92 and just make sure it was done right yeah superb that's excellent 
Errol, this has been absolutely fantastic for us. It's been a pleasure to host you on the Talk to the Hand podcast. You've been you've been brilliant. You've got some amazing stories. Love and stories. It's so They're great amazing. that you've still got things going on at the moment that are super exciting. I'm personally really looking forward to the release of Searching, as you've probably gathered by the fact I've I've said it about four times now, <laughs> but really looking forward to seeing what you do with that song because it's such a great melody. Whatever kind of background you put on it, I'm sure it's going to be mm. going to be fantastic. It's still going to have. It's still. I think the China like, brand is that soulful mm. reggae vibe. I don't think I'll. I, I don't want to take it away from that. So it's still going to be all the many roads I've traveled. So you're still going to have that. Mm. Your mind. So you're still going to have all those elements in there. It's just trying to just give it that, I don't know, it's just giving it just a cool vibe that still works commercially. Really looking forward to hearing what you do with it. Wish you the very best of luck with everything. Thank you so much for the time you spent with us today, the experiences you've shared with us. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Brilliant. Wow, that was amazing. I hope you enjoyed listening to that, guys. He was such a nice guy. And I think one of the things that was actually a little bit frustrating was that even when he was in the middle of a thought process and a song came into his head and he started singing it, it just sounded amazing every time. Amazing. Every time, whatever it was, he could go into it, the right pitch. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, What a lovely man. Genuinely grateful to Errol for the time he spent with us here. Some of the stories he recounted. I really enjoyed the fact that he thought the singing with Barry White was going to be a Jeremy Beadle prank. Yeah, the whole track, right until he got there and he was on stage and he was literally, okay, this isn't a joke now. And then he knew that he had to sing. And then he was so astounded that Barry White was there standing in front of him that he missed his cue to start the song. (laughs) Oh, lovely man. And very interesting to see what he does in the future, particularly with the 30-year anniversary of Sergeant coming next year. Yes, yeah. He seemed um, quite enthusiastic about that, and I'm I'm looking forward to to seeing what he does with that. What I really admired was the amount of work he's done after the 90s, the way he got into his songwriting, he's collaborated with various different acts, kept himself very relevant on Spotify. The amount of listeners he's getting is, is pretty astounding. And that's stuff about the record label at the start, ripping China Black off and then having to buy the track back themselves yeah. and then seeing the pose of the Lighthouse family replicating the pose yeah. that they did. It's true. It's true. So guys, we really hope you enjoyed the episode today. We certainly did. We will be doing more interviews in the future. Keep an eye out for those. One thing we'd really like to ask you to do for us is if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell one friend about it. If there's somebody else who'd enjoy reflecting back onto the 90s, please recommend us to one of your friends. That would really be helpful to us. But for now, talk talk to to the hand. hand.